0: on? There we go. Awesome. Welcome to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, we're really glad to see you this morning. We're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning with us. Um, Vicky, thank you for doing the announcements and thank you for trying to sell a minor league baseball game over the NBA finals. I, I appreciate that wherever Vicky went. Uh, I don't know if that, I don't know if anybody could sell that, but I don't know if there's a finals game or if you're into that on Friday night, but next Friday night. But um, you know, come if you're not watching the NBA finals on that night. And another clarification, Willie's, if there's any any clarity. Needs, Willie's is a barbecue restaurant in Thomas. And so if there's any confusion yeah just like it's a barbecue restaurant in in Thomas and so I uh, just wanted to make sure of that and then uh, one other thing too the the, the uh, Bryce and a handful of guys worked hard up here this week to move some speakers around and lights around and I was noticing that um, the, the lights were directly kind of in the in our faces and um, now that they're pointed kind of at angles um, i I could never see the middle section and whoever was preaching it couldn't see so I noticed that I I would look this way and I would look this way. And so I made the comment this morning that the people in the middle don't think I care about them or whoever's preaching because we just couldn't see the middle section. But now I can see the middle section. So I can actually move my eyes around a little bit more. But um, let me jump into the text this morning. Um, We'll pray after this. Four verses this morning. Out of Matthew 5, that's it. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets... you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. And as we tackle a topic this morning that's, that's sometimes difficult to get our minds around, but it is prevalent from gen- uh, uh, Genesis to Revelation, I pray that you would give us, um, uh, allow us to understand, give us um, ears to hear, and, and I pray that you would change our hearts as a result of looking at this text this morning. And as we're going to get in the weeds a little bit this morning with some of these things, I pray that um, by the end of the day, you will be magnified. You'll be seen as great, and your grace will be seen as beautiful. That's my prayer this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for for not growing up in a Christian home, I was um, the kind of person who um, didn't get in trouble a lot. I was a rule follower. I loved following directions. I didn't want people to to not think highly of me because i wasn't falling in line so for not being raised in a christian home and not becoming a christian until late in high school i was a pretty good guy there was this one occasion though when me and and a group of my friends um were going out and um because i was the way i was i was always deemed to be the designated driver when there were activities that were to be partaken in that our friends shouldn't have been partaking in, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm driving, and we, we go to this place, it's here in town, we grew, I grew up here, and so um, that's a, it's kind of a parking lot, but it's kind of secluded, and you can kind of pull into this space in this parking lot where you could kind of park and um, do the things that were not legal to do. And so my car full of guys and a couple other carloads full of guys pulled up in this spot, and our cars were kind of facing into this, um, this fence and wall area, and uh, we were just hanging out and talking, and they were doing their thing and whatever. And then all of a sudden, we didn't even see it coming, but blue and red lights came flashing up behind us. And so, of course, the guys with me scattered, climbed over the wall, climbed over the fence, but my car was there. Like, I had made a split second decision, like, I am not gonna leave my car. So I just stayed. And sure enough, like, of course, they come on the scene, and there's stuff everywhere that communicates that there's been stuff going on that should have been going on and um they proceed to uh, put me on the ground, put my hands behind my back, handcuff me and leave me laying on the ground in handcuffs for probably 20 or 30 minutes until they could sort through what happened. I don't blame them cuz they're like they just show up and so after um after everything happened um they could kind of clear my name. I, my dad found out somehow, I don't know if they called him or whatever. So I had to face my dad and um, not a smart decision, but I didn't get in trouble uh, beyond that. But he, he, here's the point and here's why I share that story. Um, there was this moment, probably when the blue and red lights came up and, and I started to feel um, a couple of things. One thing I felt was um, this, 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 um, this tendency to justify myself, I wanted to defend myself. I immediately wanted to shift blame away from me onto my friends because I wasn't doing the illegal things. And so in my mind, a part of me went into justification mode. It wasn't me. Like you can't, none of this was me. You can check me. You can test me. You can do whatever you want to do. But I was not involved in this other than driving. Not smart, but um, I was just driving. i just a driver. Um, but the other part of me said um, there was this, these feelings of intense shame and guilt Um, because I was there and I was associated now with um, these things. And I had my hands cuffed behind my back for a little bit. And I had to look eyeball to eyeball with, with cops, and they were interrogating me, asking me these questions and stuff. And so there was this intense guilt and shame. And I share this because I think for all of us in this room, when we do something wrong, or when we're even accused of doing something wrong, we break a law, break a rule, We feel one of these things, and I think that may be an oversimplification, but either we're going to want to defend ourselves and justify ourselves and say, that's not me, I'm better than that, or so-and-so else, and we tend to, to minimize it, or we tend to shift blame, or we're on the other side where we become full of excessive guilt and shame, and we beat ourselves up, and we feel horrible about ourselves. And so, and it doesn't have to be with the blue and red lights coming up behind you. It doesn't have to be something as bad as that. It could just be um, throughout your day feeling these things. And so think about, are you one of these people and do you feel these things on a consistent basis? Because I think this is a natural bent of all human beings. And in, in that moment, we don't wanna feel either one of those things. So hopefully we would want to, to understand and learn, why does this happen and how can I get help in these areas, because honestly, if if, if some of you, some of us tend to live our lives with a low level of guilt and shame, or we're always looking to justify ourselves, or prove ourselves, or defend ourselves when anybody thinks we've done something wrong, and we live our lives in those in, in those ways and on those paths, and I, I pr- and, and there's no freedom and joy and peace to be found in either. Response and so today, I think Jesus is going to help us understand one why this happens. Why do we tend when we feel like we've been found out, or we know we're wrong, or somebody accuses us of being wrong? Why do we go to these places, and what can we do about it once we're there? How do we get out of feeling like this? Um, We've been we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, right? Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew five to seven. We'll be going through that all summer. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes. Last week, we looked at salt and light. Burke did a great job walking us through that. And today, though, there's a little bit of a turn in the Sermon on the Mount. Most commentators think that the salt and light passage actually connects more with the Beatitudes than the rest of the sermon. Most commentators think that today's four verses kind of serve as the intro or almost the thesis for the rest of the book. And once we get into some of the topics we're going to hit after today, we'll keep coming back to what we talk about today because it sets a foundation for what what we are going to talk about. Now, we've talked about in the, the week so far how important context is, how important context is. And if you're living in the, in, in the world of Judaism and you're hearing what Jesus says today in these four verses, uh, verse 17 is pretty clear. Like you can start off in verse 17 and really track with Jesus because he opens it up with familiar language and you understand. But for us not living in that world, I think it's actually more helpful for us to start in verse 20 and work ourselves backwards today. Verse 20, he introduces the kingdom of heaven. And we've been talking about that idea of the kingdom for the last uh, few weeks. So that should be familiar to us. So let's look at verse 20. And we'll walk backwards to verse 17. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, immediately, we, we just stop there for a second. And think back to the Beatitudes two weeks ago. We should have a problem with this. This, this doesn't seem to compute. Like, so on one hand, Jesus is saying, bless are the poor. blessed are the peacemakers. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. And now today he's saying, well, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what, like, Jesus, what's going on? What are you saying? What do you mean that I should be as righteous as a Pharisee? And verse 20 would have, been, would have been shocking because no one was more righteous in this day and age than the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, there were 613 Old Testament laws and the Pharisees felt they existed, like their purpose in life was to try to follow all 613 of these perfectly. Like they set their whole lives up around this, at least externally perfectly. Uh, and then they went even further than that, which is where Jesus had a problem with. And they started adding to these 613 and trying to 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 behave and, and, and meet those perfectly as well. I don't know if they got bored or they needed a greater challenge or that they were awesome with the 613, but they started to add more and more, and then they started expecting the people around them to um, obey not only the 613, but the more more than that. And so this is where Jesus had a problem with them, is they're just putting people in slavery. But they were considered the most righteous people of the day. Thought thought of a Pharisee, you would think righteous, at least externally, godly uh, man. And so today it'd be similar, not quite, but the closest we can get if we were to say um, our righteousness, our godliness should exceed that of Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or some public figure that the majority of of, of Christians uh, esteem and think very highly of. Other questions should come up as we hear this. I thought salvation was by grace but you're saying that my righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees if I'm to get into the kingdom of heaven. So does God require obedience or doesn't he require obedience? And I think that's an important question we have to wrestle with. So when you hear verse 20, you should feel a little bit crushed. You should be hurt when you feel verse 20 if we just stop there. Because if this is the the demand of the kingdom, we are out. We are out of the kingdom if the demand is to be perfect because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. And part of me, when I even read this and study this, if I just look at this verse, I want to say, Jesus, where's, where's the loophole, right? Like, where's the way out of this? Like, surely, surely I can't be as righteous as the Pharisee. Surely I can't keep all 613 Old Testament laws. Like, Jesus, can can you say something to follow this to make me feel better about myself, that I can go on throughout my day to not feel like I can't in the kingdom of heaven without my righteousness exceeding that of the Pharisees. Let's look at 18 and 19, because Jesus is going to explain how he connects the righteousness he mentioned in verse 20 to God's law. Reverse 18 and 19. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, or because of that, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, them there it's God's law, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus says here, clearly in verse 18, that the law will not pass away ever. Ever. So when it says that they, he, until heaven and earth pass away, which they, they won't pass away uh, uh, completely. They'll be changed, but they will not pass away. So God's law will never pass away. And this comes up against sometimes what I hear in our circles, things like, um, you know, the, 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 we don't have to worry about God's law anymore. That was kind of Old Testament stuff. Now we just get to, to live in the New Testament because we're after Jesus' death and resurrection or here that, um, you know, the Old Testament was about the law and the New Testament was about God's grace. And those things just aren't accurate. They're not accurate because this, what this misunderstanding does is it leads some of us to relax God's laws, which Jesus is saying you can't do in this and then others to, to, to be enslaved to them. So if we don't understand the purpose of God's law in the context, then we're going to put ourselves back under the law, and we're going to be enslaved to God's law. So a correct understanding of how the law relates to grace and the gospel is so, so important. So Jesus is saying that the law will not pass away not even the smallest part of it, not even like a, a stroke pen, this is where the, the dot and the iota, not even a stroke of a pen of the smallest letter of the law will ever pass away. I mean, Jesus is trying to drive home this point here. None of it, any of it will pass away. Now, why would Jesus go to the to to, to to say this about the law, about God's word? Because Jesus believes that the Bible are the very words of God. Now, I said Bible there, you notice. So let's look at verse 17 quickly. We'll, we'll, we'll bounce up and down here a little bit. He starts off by saying, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. So law and prophets there simply mean, don't get hung up on the specific nature of those, but he's just saying all of the Old Testament, right? All of the Old Testament is what he says uh, when he talks about law and prophets. Uh, and so we know that when Jesus was doing his ministry, all that existed of the scriptures at that point in time was the Old Testament. So when he says all the law and prophets, he's just saying all the scriptures that are currently in place, which that's what Jesus was, the Old Testament, um, aren't passing away. So when he refers to them, he is referring to the law of God, but he's also referring to God's word, the Bible, the scriptures. And Jesus thought every single part of the Bible was inspired and was the very word of God. It's his primary revelation to humankind. This is what Jesus thought of the Bible. The man who calmed storms, who healed people. He healed people with just a touch. It was the embodiment of compassion and love. The one who conquered death was dead dead for almost three days and conquered death. This man, our Savior Jesus, thinks that every single word in the the Bible is the very word of God. This is what Jesus thinks about the Bible. So we should hold the Bible in the same place. Um, esteem or in the same category as Jesus does, as the very words of God. And this is why in verse 19, let's let's read it again. He gives us a stern warning because if this is God's word, then he says this about whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying if you minimize the law or teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So you can't believe in Jesus and reject the Bible or the law, or God's work. And I know in this day and age, it's not popular or trendy to, to appeal to an authority, um, to, an, to an ultimate authority. The authorities become us or the individual, and so it's not common and it doesn't work to appeal to the authority. But if we receive God's grace and are forgiven, and we're, we're walking out, and, and we're walking out the grace and living life to, to then rebel and say, God's law isn't authoritative in my life anymore, that's not being shown grace, that's rebellion. Okay, if we say I've received grace and now God's law doesn't apply to me anymore, that's rebellion and that is not receiving grace. And also the only, the only way we can be sure that we receive grace, if that grace is coming from or the source of that grace is someone with the ultimate authority to actually give that grace. So if you say the Bible and God doesn't have authority over my life anymore, what you're kind of saying is you're, 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 you're taking the legs out from under yourself saying that this, that this grace is unsure because I, I don't believe in the one or the one who has given me this grace doesn't have authority anymore. And what grace is that? How can you count on that grace now if you are saying the one who ha- has given us that grace doesn't have authority anymore? And this starts in Genesis three, the root of this wanting to make ourselves the own authority. You have Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. Perfect, p- perfection, right? Like this is, creation happens, God gives them, gives them authority, gives them stewardship, gives them ownership of creation. He spends time with them. They have everything they need to flourish and thrive, Adam and Eve do. The good creator has given his creation everything they need to thrive. And yet Adam and Eve, in that moment, tempted by the serpent, choose to define what is good and evil for themselves. Now, we're going to be our own ultimate authority here. We're going to call the shots. We're going to determine what is good and evil in our own eyes. And they did it. And we see the d- disastrous consequences that we're still feeling the effects from. Instead of realizing God's the creator, we're the creation, he has authority, and he's shown us how the way to thrive. And this is, goes back to the scriptures. This goes back to having a, a proper view of God's scriptures and God's word and God's commands. Now here's the good news. Let's look at the second half of verse 19 because good news is coming. But we have to have the proper view of God's word first, I think, before we go into this. Second half of verse 19. But whoever does them, the commandments, the, the, the law, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is trying to say here is there's some kind of, reciprocal relationship between our ability and and our esteem of god's law and and getting and operating in the kingdom of god and experiencing the kingdom of god so to the degree that we lift up god's word and lift up god's command to the degree that we will experience the kingdom if you take god's word seriously then you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven sounds a little bit like a beatitude right like that's the same kind of language we just heard two weeks ago if you esteem god's word if you, if, you, if you hold on to it, if you think it's important, then you'll experience the kingdom of heaven. So before we jump into verse 17, so far we've seen Jesus has a high standard for righteousness. We know that. And he also has a high standard for, for God's law found in the word. And that's a good thing. And we shouldn't minimize it. We shouldn't neglect it. We shouldn't say, well, that was the Old Testament. It doesn't apply anymore. Okay, So now we're going to see why he says those things. Because if we just stop here, there's a lot of things undone, at least in my mind. Like, why, why are you putting this much emphasis on righteousness, Jesus? Why are you putting this much emphasis on God's work? And we're going to see verse 17. So he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, so what does he mean here? Well, abolish, very straightforward, means to, to dismantle, to destroy, to get rid of, to move away. He's saying, I'm not doing that with God's law. I'm not doing it. I'm not getting rid of it. Um, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So fulfill. What does this idea of fulfill mean? So we've got to be careful not to read this as, um, as obeyed, uh, obeyed completely or have... Um, um, like it should be read more like fulfill that which, which was promised, not keep. Because he could have said keep there. And oftentimes we read fulfilled this, he just keep the, kept the law. And he did that, but it's so much more than that. Think in terms of a story, right? So the, the beginning of the story is the Old Testament, God's law to God's people, the beginning of the story. And Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old Testament. So everything in the Old Testament, even the law, was pointing to Jesus, was pointing to something better, a, a greater act of God's grace that we could experience, that we could know. As Jesus is saying that everything, it proceeded with the law, but now it's pointing to him, and the buildup in the law is climaxing in him. He is the climax. He is the Savior. He is the ultimate gift for us. And so that's why he, we can't abolish the law. The law is the beginning of the story. You can't have a story, you can't have the climax or the most important part of the story without a beginning. That's why Jesus said, don't forget about the law. Don't abolish it. Hold on to it. Because I'm going to fulfill the law perfectly. So he did fulfill the law. He did keep the law perfectly, but it's more than that. He is the apex of God's story of redemption. This is why the law is important. We can't just do away with it. We can't throw it out. Um, Giving the law in the Old Testament was an important thing. It was an act of grace because it revealed to God's people something of his character and nature. But it was always meant to be a pointer. Galatians 4, I believe, calls the law a tutor. And tutor, we tend to think in our day and age, someone who helps someone maybe with a subject in school. But in this, this word's more of like a nanny, like a tutor or a nanny, like someone who, who took care of like the kids. They weren't the parents but they supported the parents. They were auxiliary to the parents. They they pointed to the parents. They they helped the kids walk out the values of the parents. So the tutor is pointing to something greater. It's important for a a, a moment in time. It's important to help get our eyes focused on the right things, but it's not the main thing. The gift is Jesus. The law was meant for us to, to see the law and cry out for a greater one. And Jesus is that person. He's the perfect law keeper who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that. And he came to fulfill the law in two ways, by keeping every law perfectly, right? All the big things, death and resurrection, all those things, but also the little things. Every time you disobey or you're not perfect in your daily life, even the little things, remember Jesus kept those very things perfectly. Every single thing Jesus ever did was perfect in his 33 or so years on earth. Even in the small things, he obeyed everything perfectly. Day in and day out things. So if he kept the law perfectly, but he also paid the penalty for lawbreakers like you and me. In the justice system, like either you keep the law or you, you, you're punished for breaking the law. And Jesus did both of those things on our account. He kept the law perfectly, but then he also took the punishment from God, namely death, that we deserved. So he took the penalty, and he kept the law perfectly. So, let's go back to kind of that original question. Having experienced his saving grace, if we have faith, does God require us to obey the commandments? Does he require that? verse... 18 tells us we are to to teach God's word and we are to do the things God's word's asking us to do. So on some level, yes, God wants us to obey. He wants us to show our love for him by obeying. He didn't create us in his image and then send his only son to die for us, for then to us to kind of move ourselves from out from his authority and kind of live however we wanted to live. That's That's not the purpose of God's redemption. So yes, God wants our obedience, but our obedience looks different. It looks different now on this side of the cross and the resurrection if we are in Christ. Through God's grace, um, uh, he, uh, he forgives us and he brings us into his family, He gives us his righteousness. He gives us the Holy Spirit in order to obey the things he's asking us to do. So this is all good news. It's not, hey, you're saved now, so go work really hard to obey me. Go grind it out and just try really, really hard to be obedient. No. He says, you're my sons and daughters. Here's the righteousness that I purchased for you. Here's the Holy Spirit to actually help you obey and give you the power to do the things I'm calling you to do. This is, this is good news because, yes, God wants us to obey. So before we get into some final application points, just to, to make, make sure we understand the logical flow of this passage. And really, this is the gospel, right? So number one, we should, our, our righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. And we're not just talking about external righteousness, that's, that's true, but deeper, the motivations, what we think, what we believe. This is righteousness on a whole nother level. And we're going to see this as we move forward into the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say things like, you've heard it that was said, but I'm telling you different. And that's what he's saying. You've heard it that was said in, in the law, in the Old Testament, but I'm raising the bar. It's a deeper kind of righteousness. We'll see that over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're, we're, we're held to that standard of righteousness. And if we take God's law seriously, we'll look at God's law and we'll see, I have no hope. There is no hope that I can possibly obey this law. It's impossible. And what's that force us to do? It cries out for someone greater. It forces us to cry out for the one who can actually keep the law perfectly. Then we moved on to Jesus, that he fulfilled the requirements of the law by being perfectly obedient and taking the punishment that we deserve from God, namely death. And then finally, so now we're not under God's law, Paul tells us frequently throughout the New Testament, we're not under God's law, but but God's law and his word are still good things because they show us our continual need for God's grace and mercy in our lives, and it shows us the pathway to flourishing. Guys, back to verse eighteen and nineteen, there where Jesus said, "This is the the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We have to understand God's law, and we have to value it, because the way to flourishing is by following, uh, being obeyed, obeying God's law. That's part of our flourishing. It's part of us thriving in the kingdom. We'll see that as we get into these specific topics in the coming weeks. I love Jesus." I trust Jesus. I know Jesus. Jesus died for me. Therefore, I want to obey him. I want to follow him. I want to be like him because I know I trust him. He wants the best for me. So why wouldn't I want to obey the words of God in the, in the scriptures? Now, to end, I want to go back to what I said in the beginning of, of our time about this scenario. That when we do something wrong, when we break God's law, or we break the law of, of our, of our uh, country, or maybe we're accused of doing something wrong. Or we've been found out. We've been hiding something and we've been found out. What happens inside of us when that happens? Because I think this is the common human experience. And we have to deal with this. Okay, So remember, either we're a defender. We want to justify ourselves. I think we both go back and forth. I think most of us would lean one towards one way or the other. We're, we're defenders. We're justifiers. Or we just beat ourselves up with excessive guilt and shame. So for those of us who, who justify or defend, the key here is admitting that you're not perfect, right? Like if you think you're awesome enough to, for your righteousness to see that of the Pharisees, like that's, that's a miserable way to live. You're always gonna be proving yourself and defending yourself and pointing out how great you are and thinking how awesome you are and trying to, to compare yourself to others to make sure you feel better than them. And that's just exhausting and it's tiring. And so we, you have to believe that, that there was only one who was perfect. There was only one who was ever perfect. And he's already lived the perfect life that you'll never be able to live. So we can release the, 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 the tendency to, to always fight for ourselves and be right and be justified and get defensive when maybe your spouse points out something you've done wrong. You can say, yes, I'm a mess, I need Jesus. Thank God that Jesus died for me because I need that grace. I can't be perfect. I'm not him. So yes, Jesus becomes great in our lives and it gives us freedom. If the freedom to stop trying to prove ourselves to be someone that we're not, because we're not perfect and there's nothing that we can do to be perfect. Jesus has accomplished that force. And that is good news for those of us who are always thinking of how can I defend? How can I prove myself? How can I make myself prove, proven worthy in other people's eyes? How, how, do you see, how do you handle critique? How do you handle criticism? That'll tell you how quick you are to defend how great you are. Or can you say, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for Jesus' grace because I'm not perfect and I need to grow and I need to help and I need to repent every day. So for those of you, that's, that's one side. Now the other side, for those of you who are prone to beat yourself up, stop punishing yourself by making, you, making yourself feel shameful all the time. Like Jesus took your shame. He was humiliated so you wouldn't have to feel humiliated. He humbled himself so you wouldn't have to remain in this posture of just your head down and woe is me and I'm, 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 such, I'm such a horrible person. No. No. He died for you. He bled for you. So you don't have to, you quit lashing yourself, causing yourself to bleed because you're such a bad person. Jesus already bled and died for you. So it's done. It's finished. The shame's been taken away. So walk in freedom, walk in peace, walk in joy. And you don't have to have your head down. You can have your head up, not because of your righteousness, but because of, because of his righteousness. And now we're united to him and we have the Holy Spirit so we can, we can walk out of here today after taking communion as new creations of people who, ha, who don't have to be ashamed anymore. So much of our, our baggage and issues and even sin comes out of we just, think we're, we just think we're dirt and we're shameful and I'll never be good enough. I'll never be holy enough. And that's just a lie from Satan. If you're in Christ, you're not good enough, but he was good enough. And he's, his work is finished. It's done. So you can walk in freedom. So we're going to take communion here in a second. And I want you to kind of think about maybe what, maybe even right at the moment, what category do you fall into? And, and take this, these moment few minutes, so we give you some space and silence. Just maybe do some business with God. Think of what you're most prone to do. And either, not, neither one of these ways is going to lead us to freedom and joy. And it's ultimately not going to cause us to glorify God. They both turn in on ourselves. Either way, either I'm awesome, I'm, I want to justify myself, that's pointing to me. I'm, I'm shameful, I'm sinful, I'm awful, I'm such an awful person. Who's the fed that focus on? It's on you. So in both cases, let's get the focus off ourselves and on the one who, who, that the focus actually needs to be on. And we're going to give you some space to do that during communion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your law, even though it's a hard thing to understand sometimes and what our relationship to the law is now for those of us who have faith and are in Christ and are new creations. And so I thank you for your your word and passages like these that actually teach us and help us um, wrestle and grapple with this idea of the law. My prayer today for my friends out here is that you would um, that nobody would walk out of here in 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 chains or in slavery to the law or in slavery to, to to sin but there's this freedom from realizing what God demands of us and realizing that we have no hope in meeting those requirements so we can fall at the feet and on the mercy of the one who's greater than us who actually can keep him perfectly and who actually can die and can be a substitute um, for us and dying on behalf of us. So I pray we would leave here today, all of us would leave here today with a sense of, of joy and peace and hope because we have a great savior. Not because we're great and we're awesome, but because you're awesome and Jesus is awesome and the Holy Spirit is awesome. Purely because of your grace and mercy in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.